Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, for our weekly roundup of the news that matters. Uh, with us, as always, is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large at CQ Road Call and occasional visitor to the White House, John T. Bennett. This week, we're going to unwrap Time's Person of the Year, Trump's call to be a dictator, of course. University of Pennsylvania's president has resigned over anti-Semitic remarks that, well, she didn't make but didn't explain herself too well in, a, in Congress. Biden has made a statement about not running and then saying that 50 other Democrats could beat Donald Trump. There's a small sliver of voters that it's going to end up, and we've talked about this a lot, that will end up making the difference in the next election. And for those of you who don't know, it's been 43 years since John Lennon was murdered, and we'll talk all about that in your favorite Christmas rock songs when we come back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And with me, as always, is John T. Bennett, editor-at-large at CQ Roll Call and former federal prosecutor Michael Zellin. And we start out today talking about Time's Person of the Year. Now, the Person of the Year, that's an annual issue of, of Time that features, well, in the past, it's featured people like Charles Lindbergh, the Pope, the President of the United States 23 times the president of the United States, including Franklin Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, George Bush, all Ronald Reagan have all been named person of the year. And this isn't necessarily because they did good things. It's just the most outstanding newsmaker of the year. There's been six of uh, the general party of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the general secretary. We've had Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev, Yuri Andropov, Mikhail Gorbachev. Adolf Hitler was a person of the year. We've had popes. And now we have Taylor Swift. The, uh, for the very first time, it looks like even Time Magazine's getting sick of politics. And one of the reasons they named Taylor Swift was because she was a storyteller of her time and inspired hope. Hope being, I guess, the thing that people want to see most of these days. Uh, so we'll start with you, Michael. Were you, uh, were you surprised by? By Taylor Swift being named the person of the year, does it does it matter? Well, it's always something to look forward to. It's like the Nobel Prizes I, oh, and most valuable player awards. I, I always like to see who gets selected. Honestly, I hadn't thought of Taylor Swift as uh, being a person of the year. Mm -hmm. I think I was reading after it that um, Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, and Madonna, I think, are the only artists that were named time magazine person well they the were year. considered for it i don't think they've this is the first time an actual well, entertainer was I primary see. entertainer i see so they didn't get it they were just considered yeah, nominated yeah uh-huh i you know so it as you said it's nice to have you know sort of end on an uplifting note and and surely her tour and her 
the phenomenon that she is, you know, sort of culturally and, you know, obviously commercially um, is, is, you know, fine with me. If you wanted to go on a darker side, you could say, you know, Hamas or Vladimir Putin. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm fine. I'm just fine with um, ending on that upbeat note because she really is a phenomenon, maybe, you know, in the category of Sinatra, Presley, Beatles. I mean, she none of them Michael got Jackson. it. <laughs> no, I understand. I understand. But you know what I'm saying is that this this is a, you know, sort of a very unusual thing that she's that she's accomplished here. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm fine with it. As as noted, she became the highest grossing concert tour of all time. Time describes Swift as the first person of the year to be recognized for their, quote, achievement in the arts, unquote. Swift uh -huh. is also part of the 2017 person of the year called the Silence Breakers. She was noted by the magazine as the first woman to be recognized more than once. and the First woman to appear twice on a person of the year cover. John? I heard this news and um, Homer Simpson popped into my head. <laughs> uh, there's a clip of Homer rather dismissively saying, Hey, how about that? And that was kind of my reaction. It's kind of a shrug. Oh, that's different. Hey, how about that? Um, I mean, there's no doubting that the, the phenomenon that she is and the, uh, the business person that she is and how successful she's been with her music. She touches a lot of people. And um, congratulations, Taylor. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Brian, when you and John, when you look at the short list of, of people, you've got the Hollywood Strikers. This is Time's shortlist as they revealed yeah. it. The finalists: Hollywood Strikers, um, the Chinese President, Taylor Swift, Sam Altman, the founder of OpenAI, that you know, the ChatGPT right. person, the Trump prosecutors, Barbie, Vladimir Putin, King Charles. Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, and that's their list. And so among that group there, you know, I'm good with I'm good with um <laughs> with Taylor Swift. Yeah. There's no clear cut, you know, no, there's no clear cut number one seed on that list. So ever ever since, John, ever since Brian took himself out of the running. I mean, yeah. he's, he he did he did step out <laughs> voluntarily. So that's something that your listening audience should be aware of. That's well, I think, yeah, I think showing, yeah, yeah, him him stepping down voluntarily just showed the bigness of spirit that is <laughs> yes. exactly, exactly, exactly well, right. I, and he should have won for that reason. I, exactly. I, I have to say, I took myself out because, after all, Ben Bernanke and Mark Zuckerberg were also, uh, you know, at one point in time, person of the year. And I don't didn't know if I wanted to be in the same list as those two but or Adolf Hitler. But the fact of the matter is, out of all those that were, I'll, I'll go with uh, Taylor Swift over Mark Zuckerberg any day. But that's just me. <laughs> or the Trump prosecutors. <laughs> or, the, or Barbie. Yeah, or Barbie. Barbie. Yeah, Barbie. Yeah. I've got nothing against Barbie. No, no, no. Uh, but, uh, also this week, uh, in, on a more serious note, University of uh, Pennsylvania President Liz McGill and board chair Scott Bach uh, resigned after a disastrous hearing on Capitol Hill about anti-Semitism. 
it's it's kind of a it, you know it's described in various publications as a stunning downfall for the leader of one of the world's most prestigious universities, and it happened because sitting in a uh, a hearing on Capitol Hill, uh, Miguel couldn't really quickly enough say that that things that being done to Jewish students and people that genocide was a bad thing. Basically, she wasn't quick enough to condemn genocide. So I, I'd like you to unpack that a little bit, if you would, Michael, and we'll go from there. Yes. So um, there was a hearing on the Hill and on uh, anti-Semitism and First Amendment rights, and three university professors were being um, questioned by Stefanik, the Republican congresswoman from Staten Island, I think she yep. is, a leadership member of the MAGA group that runs the Republican Party. And she was asking the three university presidents, Penn, MIT, and Harvard, is saying that genocide against the Jews is bullying. That was her question. Was it was right. was was it was it bullying? And each of these university professors should have said in answer it answer the question, or I think it was bullying or intimidation or some some exact I forget the exact words, but it was bullying, maybe it was bullying or harassment was the was the way the question was phrased. And the way they chose to answer this was legalistically, which is to say, and we've talked about this before, that in order to incite or harass or bully by you know legal definitions, you've got to cross this Brandenburg line, which is it can't be just pure speech. I hate X group of people, but rather there's one of those X groups of people, person, let's get them. So it, it, when it transfers from speech to action is when it becomes a criminal actionable event. And they, so she was asking, is this bullying? If someone gets up a microphone and says, you know, death to the Jews, or I support the Klan or some other odious thing, does that violate your policy? And they, they, were, they were focused on the legal answer, which is no, not technically, because it doesn't present an imminent threat of physical harm. And so no, not technically speaking. And it just was the worst possible answer. The possible answer of, of course, that's terrible. Of course, it's harassment and intimidation. Of course, it violates the norms of society. But if you're asking me, technically speaking, as a legal matter, is it actionable? No, but you raise a good point, and maybe we should be looking at our policies more broadly to prevent hate speech on our closed campus. And so they just said, they kept saying, no, it's not technically so, or they equivocated. And ultimately, MIT wrote a note, the board sent a, and, or, uh, sent a note supporting the president. I think Harvard has been pretty silent about it. And um, in Penn, she was under a lot of pressure because there was a previous incident where I think there was some like, Palestinian uh, organization that, that she gave the authority for them to meet on, on campus. What, what's telling is her resignation statement, Brian. She said, and I'll read it, it's just a, I'll read a portion of it. It says, in that moment, when I was being questioned, 
I was focused on our university's longstanding policies aligned with the U.S. Constitution, this Brandenburg line that I'm talking about. I was focused on our university's longstanding policies aligned with the, uni un the United States Constitution, which say that speech alone is not punishable. That's what the First Amendment protects us against. I was focused on the university's longstanding policies aligned with the U.S. Constitution, which says that speech alone is not punishable. I was not focused on, but should have been, the irrefutable fact that a call for the genocide of the Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. It's evil, plain and simple. In my view, it would be harassment and intimidation. This is what I should have said, she said, on reflection. But she's a First Amendment scholar. She right. is a free speech um, <clears throat> tenured professor in, in, in the law school. And she was being asked, is this essentially bullying? And she said, the lawyer in me was saying, well, no, not yet. And I didn't first say it's terrible, full stop. Um, we need to address it on our campus. But if you're asking me the legal, technical legal question, no, it doesn't yet reach bullying because it's just speech and the Constitution prevents. So it was just a disaster. I don't know who prepped her for that testimony, but right. you know, shame on shame on them because it, it seemed it seemed an obvious um, question. But anyway, uh, poor Professor uh, McGill or you know, now Professor McGill, former President McGill at Penn, is no longer um, president. And you know, I think it's it's. The whole thing was a disaster. It was just a, you know, as they say in law, a shit show. Yeah, <laughs> that's the technical term. You get that's that, the technical term. That, yeah. That's in the yeah. same claim, same class you learn about writs and torts. Uh, John, yeah, exactly. <laughs> John, your thoughts on it? Yeah, this falls into the category of something I've been noticing. Um, it's almost like nobody's reading the room anymore, and. Excuse me. And that goes into the prep and who who prepped uh, these college presidents is a great question. You have to read the room and you have to understand that you're in a political environment. And that's not the time to try to abide by some some technical metric that's written down on a dusty book somewhere or posted a code of conduct or something. You have to understand who's asking you the question. You have to know who the members on the committee are. You have to do your homework. And it just didn't seem like any of them were were ready for that hearing. But, you know, it was pretty obvious what the Republicans were going to use the hearing for and how they they botched it. And, and Michael was right. It was a shit show and it was a disaster. And how did you how did you you walked in there and, and you weren't ready for those kinds of questions? It's really remarkable. What what I find fascinating is you touched it right there, John, is the, the lack of prep. And you mentioned it as well, Michael, but it's it's the appearance versus reality portion of the mm -hmm. uh, event. The you know, the reality was you weren't there to talk about the First Amendment. The reality was you wanted to talk about the appearance that that this statement and what happened made. And look, I think it was the Yale School of Management professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld said it wasn't an issue of misspeaking. McGill and other university presidents missed the forest through the trees, upholding the right to free speech above the safety of students. Uh, quote, university leaders have an elevated duty to fortify the truth and protect their campus communities from hate threats and violence, Sonnenfeld said in a statement. Freedom of expression is not an absolute right. 
anywhere in society, hate speech is different from speech. Yeah, I get that. I still think if you're talking technicalities, you're correct. I don't think it, you know, it it didn't breach that. But at the same time, it, it, you need to start out saying, look, we we don't like this. This isn't any good. Damn it. We'll, we'll look into how we we look at it in the future. And that would have been enough to satisfy, I think, even members of Congress, the appearance of it. Because at the end of the day, I understand her statements. I just think they were inappropriate for the where where she was at that time. Right. The thing that struck me, you know, having been a law school teacher for for a number of years, is that this was a, a as they say, a teachable moment. This was a moment where yes. the universities could say, hey, look, this went terribly and we are sorry for it. We're not going to take re- retributive action now, but rather what we're going to do is open up of full-throated dialogue around these issues. We are going to have symposium and speakers and uh, presentations about free speech and the the rights that people enjoy in our campus. We're going to have an open dialogue about this. And then that process will inform us whether or not we need to tinker with, with our policies. And if so, how? I mean, I think that they just react um, knee jerk in a cover your ass sort of way. That's another legal phrase. I'm sorry to throw all this law uh, stuff in here, shit show <laughs> and cover your ass, but it's a cover your ass sort of thing. It's easy to say we'll get rid of President McGill and, you know, nothing more to see here. We've taken the action. Of course, that doesn't do anything except scapegoat her and the university has got to address um, their lack of sort of spine or their lack of clarity around what does free speech on their campus entail. And that's, I think, a lost opportunity. They may still do that, but that's what I think they it should have been their response rather than we're, we're throwing we're throwing out the, the 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 president and, you know, we're good now. Scapegoat, exactly. cover your ass. That man, you're you're covering all the legal terms this morning. Well, when, when we come back, speaking of legal terms, when we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit about well, Donald Trump and his dictator comments, which Mitt Romney compared to a human gumball machine. Stick around, we'll talk about that human gumball machine when we get back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with our weekend review, Just Ask the Press. As usual, John T. Bennett, editor-at-large at CQ Roll Call, and former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin, who's been teaching us this morning those, those fine 
terms that you need to learn if you want to become a lawyer, such as covering your ass and shit show. So, <laughs> so we're here to learn a little bit more. And John, I'm going to let you unpack this one. This week, Donald Trump said if he were reelected, he'd be a dictator, but just for one day. And uh, there's been, and he doubled down on that at an appearance later, but it was Mitt Romney actually, who I, I loved uh, his reaction to it. He said, and this is reported in one of your uh, competitors, The Hill, uh, President Trump's dictator remark, uh, according to Mitt Romney, is nothing more than the output of a human gumball machine, noting that neither is filtered before coming out. It's just what you get. And uh, that was in an interview with NBC uh, News Meet the Press with Kristen Welker. Uh, Romney said that he was less concerned about the implication of Trump saying he would be a dictator on day one and more concerned about the actions he took toward the end of his presidency when asked about Trump's comments. So I'll let you unpack a little bit about that, uh, John. Yeah, the- <laughs> that's that's a hell of a lead into you, but go for it. <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, but it's Trump, so it's got to be a lot. Um well, the remarkable thing about the dictator comment is he was asked about it and asked if he had any plans, uh, if he's reelected to serve as a dictator or abuse power. Uh, Sean Hannity used both those uh, those words and phrases. And initially, Trump just sidestepped it. Uh, he he didn't he 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 came back later. Hannity, before the first break on this alleged town hall, a town hall usually involves voters also asking him some questions, but Hannity did all the questioning. Um, so right before the first break, Hannity clearly worried about Trump's initial sidestepping and not, and instead of saying, no, Sean, um, you know, I'm not going to be a dictator. Uh, Trump just didn't really address it, but he didn't say no, did he? He didn't say no. So that made it already pretty big news. And then when Hannity tried to bail him out, Trump even acknowledged that Hannity was worried. He said, this guy's going crazy. And and Trump said on day one, you know, he'll open up more uh, drilling, natural gas uh, and oil drilling and uh, close the border, whatever that means. And a couple more things on day one. But then on day two, he wouldn't be a dictator anymore. He would just go back to being regular, regular old President Trump. Um, A lot of people disagree with that. (laughs) A lot of people like me are skeptical that uh, dictators ever give up power easily or peacefully, as I wrote this week. So. Um, you know, once it's kind of like once you embrace the dictator thing, that's you stay there. You, you don't move off it unless you're forced to. So it was a very troubling comment. People should be worried about, um, you know, what's deep down really in his heart of hearts and what he wants to do and how far he's willing to push the system um, if he is reelected. And, you know, if the election was held today, there's a good chance he would be reelected. Uh, we do almost have we have uh, about eleven months to go, um, so it should be troubling. I think it should trouble people that 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 you know somebody with especially that personality. He's already showed us what he's capable of, um, and one troubling thing. And I wrote this in my column for Roll Call this week is this is just another example of how Trump has desensitized everyone just about because he says things like this. And then, as you said, he doubled down, doubles down on it. His defenders in Congress and elsewhere go on television and say, oh, he didn't mean dictator. You know, I, he, he was taken out of context. It'll only and, be for one day. <laughs> yeah. And, and they'll defend it and kind of explain it a little bit or all oh, the media's you know, attack the media. The media's blowing this out of proportion. And it just 
it's just another example of 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 how he he uses the media and 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 uses the coverage um to really desensitize everyone and i mean who couldn't be numb after what eight years of this well i was numb after a couple of days michael (laughs) (laughs) yeah so of course being a dictator on day one is in 24 hours you can do a lot of damage um to a lot of people amen Um, and uh so i'm not so sure that i'm comforted by um, it's only a day one dictatorship because right. I always I heard that sentence that he said only on day one and um, close the border and drill, drill, drill. Now, of course, drill, drill, drill has nothing to do with uh, dictatorship. It's a policy position about um, oil and gas exploration, I assume. And closing the border Either that or he's got got a dentist he's not real fond of, but go ahead. Exactly, exactly. That's another point I hadn't thought about. Um, And drill, 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 and um, close the border are not really responsive to the question. So, you know, I sort of heard it as only on on day one, I'll be a dictator, comma. And also, I stand for drilling and um, closing closing our, our borders. So, you know, Hannity didn't parse the grammar of 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 that statement but you know a comma there makes a big difference um, yes it does uh but the thing about it is even if he isn't going to be you know the next um dictator a la mussolini or hitler but rather simply just a strong man like um hungary or or putin or belarus it's it's not good. Uh, I, I think it was Chuck Hagel who, in response to it, the former um, senator said something like, what he does that's so bad is he continues to push people into corners and give voice to the polarization that is in our country. That's the real danger, is that there's no ability to find compromise, which is what the democracy um, system of government, democratic system of government requires. So even if he's not a dictator in the Hungary Putin sense, if he keeps pushing people into the corners, we become more and more dysfunctional. Then he's just, you know, an anti-democrat, uh, not capital D, small anti-democracy yeah. person, <clears throat> and that has you know terrible long-term implications. Uh, for for the country, so I will, any way you look at it, that's you know, and and when it's combined with his speech, where he talks about the real threat is from within, you know, vermin and others, which is you mm-hmm. know lines taken out of um, Hitler's um, speeches. I think it it just is, it's not good by any by any stretch. You can't sugarcoat this, and the notion by his apologist speakers that that oh you know he's just kidding this always when he says something outrageous Stephen Chunk you know oh he's just you know he's just kidding it's taken out of contest it's a sad miserable liberals who are whining about it's just it's not acceptable stuff I'll go a step well go ahead John yeah to, to Michael's point about you can do a lot of damage in one day if everyone remembers the the last first day the last first day, the first day of his uh, 
of his Last, first term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, after the parade and and everything, he went to the Oval Office, and they had executive orders ready uh, even back then. And they, I mean, that initial group especially, um, they weren't they weren't exactly veterans of the White House or or the administration, no. but even they had executive orders ready. So just imagine how many executive orders he could sign that evening. Yeah, in in 15, 20 minutes. Look, I, yeah. I'm I'm gonna go at it this way. I'm not concerned about Donald Trump saying he'll be a dictator for a day. <laughs> I lived through four years of his attempted dictatorship the last time he was in office. What concerns me are those people when he last came to office, there were some some regular Republicans among those that were appointed. That you know, mm-hmm. he struck a deal, and so there were some longtime Republicans who who made up his first, at least in the beginning, part of his administration. That will not be the case the second time around. These are going to be people that are just loyal to Donald Trump. And I'm less concerned about what Donald Trump will do in day one and what this, what his administration would do with his sycophants uh, for the remaining four years of the administration. Yeah, and, and, that's a, and that's a great point, Brian, because he's already, there's already circulating sort of lists of people who will be cabinet members. And, and I think there was an interview yep. with, uh, was it Cash Patel? Um, yeah. Uh, who has said, you know, essentially we're coming for you. You can look up what, what he said. But yeah, I'm if, one of the yous he's coming for. Let's see. Yeah. Right, if, if, if season one was the dress rehearsal for season two, you know, it, it's sort of like season one will be, the good old days compared to where we will be because of who will who will surround him. And as you said, Brian, as we talked about, you can do a lot on day one. You can do a hell of a lot of damage that you will not be able to undo. And the repercussions, well, it, it like ripples in a pond for years and years across this country. And it's not a safe situation and it's very frightening. The other thing that happened, of course, this week was, uh, and this is something that I really kind of and it, it has shaken some of longtime Democrats. President Biden, when asked in, in the Roosevelt room that uh it, well initially he said that if it weren't for Donald Trump running, he wouldn't be running. He said he but we have to defeat Donald Trump and he's in. But he also said there are 50 other Democrats that could defeat Donald Trump, which I found funny because polls say that that uh right now Biden is not one of them. So is that an indication that he is doesn't have the fire in his belly to be cut, to run to make this run? I asked the first lady when she made an appearance in LA this week, is she supportive of her husband's race for the White House? And she had no answer. That should have been an easy answer to make. So at the same time, I've seen a pressure to uh, get a lot of initiatives done quickly, including the uh, female health initiative that Dr. Jill Biden appeared in LA about. They were given a 45-day window at Cedar sinai to put together the initiative for the president. It's due December 28th, and they're talking about the Biden train pulling out. These are types of things that I've usually seen in a second administration when a president looks like he's headed for the door, which is frightening and telling. I, I think there's mixed signals about what's going on with Biden. And John, you're 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 nodding in agreement. You you've covered administrations as I have. Does that does the pre, does President Biden's statement or any of the actions taken in the office cause for concern? 
Well, I, I think if you're a Democrat, you should be concerned, um, A, because, as you said, he's not he's not leading in the polls right now. He's not leading in the right places either. Uh, the swing states don't look great right now for Joe Biden. And it's not clear who would run and, and be the eventual nominee if if he decides to not run. Um, it's not at all clear to me that that person would be Kamala Harris, the vice president. I think it's clear that it won't be, but that's it. You know, a lot of the conventional wisdom <laughs> is uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of, of California, would be a strong contender, and he probably would be a strong contender. But, you know, Biden, I think this also makes Biden look like a uh, somehow like a weaker candidate. As you said, you know, is his heart really in this? And I, I, I don't know how I don't think it's going to affect the fundraising, but it was just strange. It was just a strange thing to say. He was also asked as he was leaving the Roosevelt Room if he thought there were other Democrats who could right. beat Trump. And he said, yeah, about 50 of them. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Well, if that if that was true. And why, he's not one you know, of why, them. <laughs> why, right. Why did you run again? You you told us you know months ago that you thought you were the only Democrat who could beat Trump. And now suddenly there are 50 others. So it was a very curious moment. Uh, you do have to think about his age at, at, at 81 and, and saying, you know, something like that. It was um, it, it I think Democrats should be very worried for a number of reasons. This is just one of them. Michael. Well, I think without any uh, knowledge or facts that underlie my opinion, which is, you know, as you know, on this show, very normative for, for me, uh, no facts, but a lot of opinions. The, um, <laughs> the, I think the, the thinking of Joe Biden is the same this time around as it was last time around, which is he is, he considers himself the best hope to defeat Donald Trump. And were it not Donald Trump, as he said, um, if Donald Trump, if Donald Trump said, look, I'm, I, I've been president once, I don't want to be president again, and I'm not going to run a second term. So he says that as he walks out the, the door. I think Biden probably doesn't run. I think that he probably holds truer to his um, view that he was this bridge between what was the first Trump presidency and normalcy, which is where he wants to, to leave us. But Trump didn't exit stage left. Um, and he's there and Biden still thinks it's, you know, con his continuing mission. What What's complicated about it is that that coalition that put him in office doesn't seem to be gelling again for him this time. And so while he may have the hope that he will do it again, the the, the numbers on the ground at the moment don't seem um, positive. The problem here, I think, though, is um, got another layer to it, which is if Donald Trump, rather, I'm sorry, if if President Biden were to step aside, then Kamala Harris is the logical um, choice among Democrats, because if you're a Gavin Newsom or some other white male, and you know who is the backbone of the Republic of the Democratic Party, African American women. How do you run against her? How how do you, in a primary setup, run against Kamala Harris, who for sure would would run for president? I would assume. Um, 
And uh, the electability of Kamala Harris seems to me uh, less secure than the electability of President Biden. And so, you know, if he were to step aside today, and if my proposition is correct, that it's very hard for a white male to take on um, a black female in the Democratic primary structure, then are we better off with a somewhat weakened Joe Biden? And it remains to be seen what the Joe Biden of 11 months from now will look like compared to the Joe Biden of now, or a, a Kamala Harris, who I think is probably even weaker a candidate than Joe Biden. So I think we're in a I think Democrats are in a um, very difficult situation. Yeah, I look, I'll go back to something that, you know, the comedian Bill Burr appearing on Jimmy Kimmel said, America's tired of politics and that we're tired of two old men being at the top of the ticket. And he 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 said it'd be nice if both of them passed away in their sleep, both Trump and, and Biden. Uh, to which Kimmel said, you're going to get a visit from the Secret Service. He goes, no, I, I just want to peacefully pass, pass away. But there is the concern, a growing concern on both sides of the aisle, not so much on, on the Republican side of the aisle, because those who support Donald Trump don't factor age in to him, even though he is as uh, essentially, you know, within two or three, three years of the same age of, of Joe Biden. He's in his upper 70s. He's ex, uh, expressed He's made statements in public that make one concerned about his mental well-being. Of course, he did that when he was in the White House. So I'm not, you know, that's not, that's <laughs> nothing new. But you're right. The Democrats have a problem. And so, you know, I, I go back to what Bill Burr said, but I'm going to I'll look at it this way. I was at a comedy club and it was Arsenio Hall who got up, did about 40 minutes, killed when he did. It was a great show, but got up and talked about how both of these guys are too old. And it was Bill Burr who said something very telling, actually. He said, I want someone who's going to be alive to um, to face the repercussions of the decisions that they make. And that's not going to be either one of these fellas. The actuarial tables don't lie. Neither one of them are, are long for the planet. I mean, they're in their uh, 80s and late 70s. So he was hoping for someone a, a little younger, and I think that's Americans are just upset with politics in general and upset with aging political leaders. But I don't know if the, that the political structure being what it is, Michael, you make an excellent point. I don't know that that a younger person, more vibrant person is going to be able to step forward. And I do know that there are plenty of people in the Democratic Party who are not fans of Kamala Harris. And while she may be the uh, heir apparent if Joe Biden didn't run, it's not apparent that she would garner enough votes to be real to get to get elected. Right, John? I mean, do you think she's going to get 78 million votes, which is what well, it looks like that's about what it would take 79 million votes? I don't think so. Yeah. And what is her appeal to um to independent voters in in the Rust Belt or Georgia, right now, um, her portfolio. I mean, no no vice president has a great portfolio. Uh, that's kind of the job. You get all the leftover stuff, but yeah. I couldn't tell you what her portfolio is, and I get paid to keep an eye on that kind of stuff. So um, it's a real conundrum right now. Uh, you know, there's Andy Brashear. He's the Democratic governor of Kentucky. 
uh, deep red state Kentucky, and he just won a second term. But I was talking the other night uh, with somebody about this. Would you would you want to run him against Donald Trump and and potentially kind of burn his shot at the White House going against somebody like Trump? Or would it be wiser for the party to keep somebody like that on the on 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 the shelf, so to speak, for twenty twenty eight? So it's it's just not clear what happens if Biden um, did drop out. There's not much of a campaign there. We, Brian, you and I have talked about that. Yeah. Um, the, the, it, there's not much of a campaign there. He did one event, I believe, after he announced. Um, it's not, I mean, he's fundraising. He's fundraising like crazy. He's going to be fundraising again this week. He was fundraising last week. He was he was in L.A. and California. Um, so that that part of the campaign is very much operational. But it, Joe Biden hasn't done any campaign rallies. Joe Biden, you know, hasn't done a town hall uh, anytime recently. So, you know, there are signs there like, wait, is this real? Because you can raise funds and then give them to someone else. Well, and there so, are Democrats who are really upset that there's not an infrastructure in the swing states uh-huh. for for, right. uh, for Biden. So, I mean, there are all kinds of warning signs right there in front of us that this is not going well and, and could end up with Donald Trump back in office. So right. we're going to we're going to take another short break and when we come back it's that time of the year it's Christmas. Uh so we can't get out of you know can't get out of this uh broadcast without talking about Hunter Biden. No, I without talking about Christmas music though. Stick around we'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and this is our weekend review show, Just Ask the Press. With me, as always, is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large CQ Rocall, an occasional visitor, and I believe you'll be in the pool on Monday, John T. Bennett from Rocall. Uh, look, we, we we could talk about Hunter Biden. We could talk about uh, a lot of other things, and I just don't care to at this point. So let's talk about Michael, you brought up something. You had talked about favorite holiday music, rock music. So it's all yours. Take it away, brother Michael. Well, so you were, we were, I was asked on this show, what was my least favorite Bob Dylan song? And I yes. said, you know, the Bob Dylan Christmas album has to be right up there. Um, and so it got me thinking, well, so then that's easy. What's the favorite Christmas song, not Bob Dylan Christmas song, but great favorite Christmas song uh, that you have. And I, I have two that come to mind. One is not per se a Christmas song. It just has the first lyric that's coming on Christmas um, where they're cutting down trees, they're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace, which is Joni Mitchell's River, which I think is just a brilliant song. And so it's my favorite Christmas 
song. But in terms of a pure Christmas sort of song, you've got Springsteen's Santa Claus is Coming to Town. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I, I'm going to go with a more tried and true Rocking Around the Christmas Tree um, by Brenda Lee. That's uh, so that's that's where that's where I'm that's where I'm headed. John, yours. Uh, I've become a, a big fan of Run Run Rudolph. <laughs> Run Run Rudolph. And all the various covers thereof. Really? That's, that's... I, I I didn't expect that. And um I had, I guess, the XM channel on. I was doing chores and stuff, and I found myself singing along. Really? Yeah. I I, I you know, I, I can't even I I <laughs> I, I I don't even know where to go with that. I, I, I do like the I do like the little drummer boy uh with who was it with was um Bowie and um Sinatra or or was it Bing Crosby? No, Bowie and Bing Crosby on a on the show singing uh Little Drummer Boy. Um just for the incongruity of those two singing together. <laughs> it looked looked like Crosby Bing Crosby was a little uh little little nervous and and uh Bowie was just having fun with it, but that's one of my but I gotta tell you. Honestly, there's there's and and I do want to talk a little bit about this because uh, of the timing of it. But one lyric that I always liked, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fear. And I, I think that's an appropriate lyric for this day and this age. And of course, that's Happy Christmas War is over with John and, and Yoko um, and the Harlem Community Choir actually singing with them. So I, I I'll go with that one for for my all time, the one that's that I a great like. that's a great choice. I, the, the one other song that that just came to mind as I was listening and thinking, oh man, really Brenda Lee? But I, I, <laughs> I do like Brenda love, Lee. Yeah, I do love um, Nat King Cole's "The Christmas oh, Song." Yeah, that's roasting on an open fire. That that has to that has well, to be that, a short list. For yeah, sure. that's always on a short list with a uh, with, with a nice hot toddy. Let's let's yeah, yeah. hot chocolate sitting around the Christmas tree singing that one. Did you and, did you mention uh, um, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas? Also, the big that's Crosby. A, that's, that's a, a good a, one. Yeah. yeah, but the rock and roll version is the stuff, rock, I, we're talking about the rock and roll. Yeah, stuff. yeah. If you're going strictly rock and roll, I mean, right. um, there there is something about Bruce Springsteen singing. You better watch out. Let's yeah. just. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the rock and beat it. I mean, to put a backbeat to that is just really enjoyable, but that's, you know, the, he's got, he's got potential Springsteen. Maybe it, one of these days he could be times person of the year. Hey, in 19, I'll tell you this in 75, he was on the front cover of time magazine and Newsweek. I think in the same week being touted as the future of rock and roll, maybe it was 74, but it was right. I think when he, he made uh, made it big right with uh, Born to Run, and uh, yeah. so that was yeah. that that was the week he was. At. And I remember going, "Who the hell is this guy?" <laughs> yeah, well, remember his first two albums, "Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey," and the the sec the, the next one were not commercially successful albums. No, in '73, he was you know still playing tiny clubs um, here in Washington, the cellar door. Yeah. Child Harold, you know, seating a hundred ish people. Um, so, yeah. Well, the thing I remember about Bruce Springsteen at first was not that he was a singer, but when uh, Manfred Mann's Earth Band came out with Blinded by the Light, 
he was the right it was his song yeah and that it was, was and he did a version of it and uh man for man uh killed it with their version i'm going who is this bruce springsteen guy let's <laughs> <laughs> but now I know that John, that was, uh, uh, that was a little before your era, I believe, I guess that's, or was yeah, it, I, you know, the, I know the boss has uh, a big following, but I, uh, this will be controversial. The most controversial thing I'll say all day. Uh Oh, a lot of, a lot of the songs sound the same. <laughs> I, I have a hard time. It's like it's on a loop. So, you know, it's just, you know, personal preference. So let's see, you, you, you've panned Springsteen, you've, you poo-pooed Taylor Swift. <laughs> I have. Um, you're, 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 you've not shown any enthusiasm for Bob Dylan. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you remember who the Beatles are. So, <laughs> but you're, you're still listening to, you're, you're ACDC, Metallica. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, those, that's your music, right, John? That's the good stuff. Yeah, Guns N' yeah. Roses. Yeah. That, that, yeah. They yeah. have a good Christmas album. <laughs> I don't know if Guns N' Roses ever did a Christmas album, but they're back together and um, they're in the money making business. So why not? Yeah, they're on tour go. again, John. They're going. Yeah, on they're tour? touring. They've been touring for a couple of years. The the original band. Most of them, yeah. yeah. Once uh, once Axel and Slash, um, I guess were convinced how much money they could make. They buried their various hatchets. Wow. Mm -hmm. I, and I could tell you a story about them, but I'll save it for another time. Uh, <laughs> but I will. I look. I'll end this. It, uh, we're talking about music, and I I, I do want to go back forty three years ago, December eight, nineteen eighty. Um, I was working at a pizza place in college, and then I had a late night shift at uh, the local radio station. And there is a guy who, among us that you'd know, John Major Garrett, who was working mm -hmm. at the same radio station I was at the time. He's a former White House correspondent. Major and I were in college at the University of Missouri. Halfway through my shift that night, the AP alarm bell went off. Four bells. I had never heard that before. And um, not having heard that before, we went in to find out that it was about John Lennon, that Lennon had been shot. I immediately called Parkland Hospital, where in in New York, and it was it was a long night. We played uh, Beatle music all night. That after it was over with, I remember I was going to go to New York and and mourn with a lot of friends. I ended up getting very drunk, uh, passing out. In my car woke up with snow falling through the open window on my face, and of course after that it was New York and and mourning. I've always had a hard time explaining what that particular time in history meant to me. And then Siskel and Ebert showed up on our college campus a year later, talking about some of their favorite movies. And they were talking about the Manchurian candidate and how it related to the John F. Kennedy assassination. And it was uh, Roger Ebert who said, and I'll never forget it. He said for his generation, John Kennedy's death meant the end of childhood and the beginning of adulthood. And I knew then that the, what, what, to me, what John Lennon's death was, that was the beginning of adulthood and the end of childhood. It meant a lot to a lot of different people. I mean, here was a guy who was saying, you know, give peace a chance and imagine all the people living in harmony and being gunned down in, in New York City. So it's always been, you know, and I can't honest to God believe it's been 43 years. And I don't know. I, I mean, I'll start with with you, John, because you are the youngest among us. 
when when you think about uh that how does it affect you if at all i just think it's an was an incredibly uh uh you know sad situation obviously um very unfortunate um i will plead guilty i'm not the most knowledgeable uh john lennon historian well i don't think any of us are but good <laughs> thank you for admitting that that's <laughs> michael well in my lifetime i've lived through multiple assassinations king yes both kennedys um and john lennon is right up there with you know so sort of the day the music died for me um and this transition from childhood to uh, adulthood even though i was you know a young adult um when when he was when he was um murdered at you know 11 o'clock that e that that evening but it's just not been the same every time i look at the and and it came home brian when they released the beatles that is when the beatles released this newest song that john was working on and mm -hmm. i'm thinking oh my god 1980 right. uh he was taken from us what joy could have been brought to us had he not been shot by mark david chapman at 10 50 p.m december 8th when i heard it i was coming out of uh, a pizza place million owls on um, 18th street here in in dc and i got in the car and there's howard cosell there you go never this this occurred um, Monday night football. At the time of, of a Monday night football game, and the person who sort of broke the news was was Howard Cosell, who, along with Frank Gifford, were broadcasting the the show, um, and they, you know, sort of broke in to say that John Lennon has been shot outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York, twice, Walking out of the twice, Dakota. twice shot in the back over you know a sort of a scribbled uh signature i think right wasn't it mark david chapman saying that he that he he didn't like the way john lennon signed his name or something on on an album that, that he had presented to him earlier in the evening well he it was i think it was earlier he had signed an album for or given him a, a signature but there was no sane reason for it he was uh he at one point in time believed he was john lennon and uh, there was another time there was an interview where he had gone into a bar and said he just uh, got done interviewing McCartney and Lennon. And they were getting back together. He was uh, with Lennon out of the limelight. I think his his uh, madness was able to take reign and he could pretend to be, you know, John Lennon. And when John came out and and look, there's a couple of things I I really for others who don't understand it. I just started dating my wife, who you know, at the time. So woman. But on that album, Double Fantasy, that just came out a few weeks before he was killed, brought John back into the limelight. Uh, all the songs that he produced on that album were stellar. And, of course, Paul McCartney's favorite song, John Lennon's song, was on that. It was called Beautiful Boy. The sadness of that is about John with his five-year-old son saying, you know, before you cross the street, take my hand. Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And he talked about holding his son's hand. He goes, I can hardly wait to see you come of age, but I guess we'll both just have to be patient. And those were 
very poignant considering that he was to die, you know, shortly thereafter. But there was also other things that, that for anyone who listens to music today, I'll go back to Taylor Swift, the, the music of hope. There was something about the music back then where they took on political problems. I mean, that that was a standard rock trope throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, taking on society before it became uh, haters are going to hate. It, it it was for dead in Ohio. I mean, there was there were they were definitely take, and that was one of the things that Lennon and the Beatles. Uh, you say you want a revolution? Uh, well, we'd all like to change your head. I mean, there were things that that rock music took on that John was symbolic of that I think died with him. The day the music died that you referred to, of course, is Buddy Holly, and he was a huge influence, and that was February 3rd of 59, and that was, you know, he was a very, he was very influential in the Beatles. They all, in fact, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, one of the reasons why the Beatles named themselves the Beatles was after Buddy Holly and the Crickets. They became Beatles, and they were with an A, so it was Beatles and Crickets. So that's, I I just think at, at the end of the day, what we lost 43 years ago has not yet been replaced and shoes to fill and all that. But that role that was played uh, speaking to injustice and the political oppression and problems, where do I, I, I don't do it, it, enlighten me if I'm wrong. I just don't see that in the music of today. Anybody? <laughs> Irreplaceable, even by Taylor Swift. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that she's made a lot of money and I'm glad that she's a, a storyteller, but you know, there were others before that uh, I and and Lennon was one of them for me. So with that, you know, I've told you, Brian, I've told you on this podcast before. And I think um, I'll say it again, that all you need to know is the lyrics of the Beatles and Bob Dylan's songs and nothing else um, can be additive. Well, of course, Guns and Roses, but that's oh. right. Right, John. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe not. I, would, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't even go that far. <laughs> so as we bring the, uh, uh, the, the show to a close, I guess we could talk about Hunter Biden's nine charges. <laughs> Anybody want to chime in on that one? If he's guilty, let him go. That's John. Well, no, actually, I mean, if he's guilty, I've, prosecute him. That's uh, I, I mean, let it fly. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, it it appears um, that that some laws may have been broken here and. Um, he should not be uh, immune or or get a lesser punishment just because his father is happens to be the president right now. Um, and when you're in the limelight, you you get more scrutiny. And unless you're Jared, well, <laughs> there is that. There? Um, that is the that is the counter argument you hear from Democrats that Jared Kushner, um, as soon as he walked out of his White House job, got. Uh, what a couple billion dollars yeah. from the investment fund, um, but you know Hunter didn't do things. He didn't register, you know, as a foreign, um, whatever the term is there, foreign agent, I guess, or not foreign agent, but um, he he didn't take the proper steps while doing business overseas. Um, didn't pay his taxes, uh, etc. So yeah, if if he's if he's guilty, he should be prosecuted and 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 should have the same punishment that you or I would have. Exactly. Uh, I'm but yeah, you know, this is political. There's a big political dynamic. Um, Republicans are working hard to make the the possible crimes of the son, the crimes of the father, 
Um, and that's not a, a criminal matter. That's a political matter. You know, they're going to looks like hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress later this week. Um, he's been subpoenaed in the in the House uh, impeachment inquiry uh, to testify. Hunter tried to Hunter Biden and his legal team uh, tried to call House Republicans bluff by saying, OK, he'll come, but only in a public hearing. And um, even this morning, some of the committee members uh, were on the Sunday shows and they want to do a closed door deposition. We've, of course, seen House Republicans leave these depositions and say X happened. And later that day, released the transcript and there was no X. No, they yeah. misled everyone. They just they 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 just didn't tell the truth about what was said behind closed doors. And understandably, uh, Hunter Biden and his lawyer, Abby Lowell, want to avoid that. And I think we can all understand why, uh, because then on Fox News and conservative media, um, the, the the corrected version, the correct version of the transcript is not always reported, is it? No. So, um, it, well, facts that don't matter. Play out, yeah, the, the political part will continue to play out um, just as it is now, really. Um, but this is a problem. This is another problem for Joe Biden. Hunter is officially a political liability. He was before, but these new charges and the fact that now, you know, Congress is going to um, is just going to keep beating this drum, you know, other than the farm bill and something next year to keep the government open beyond the election. It's not going to be a, a big legislative year. It's an election year. It never is, really. Uh, and the defense policy bill. So House Republicans will have to do something and i i how many hearings on on hunter biden could they could they hold the three committees have jurisdiction judiciary oversight and ways and means because of the tax piece so they can make this a big issue an even bigger issue next year michael is it, it disconcerting at all that jim jordan isn't facing any uh, uh you know repercussions for not answering a congressional subpoena and they're going to hold hunter biden in contempt well, that would speak to whether or not there's any hypocrisy on Capitol Hill. And I've seen I've seen no evidence of it so far um, in the last five minutes. So uh, I, it's hard to answer that. It's hard to answer that that question. But, you know, look, if I, I don't know whether there's anything to whether or not President Biden benefited from his son's gross influence peddling and whether or not Joe Biden has been truthful with the American public or not. I, I don't know the evidence at, at, at all. But, but Hunter Biden did profit um, from his father's name. He did fail to pay taxes in the indictment. He's charged with having earned $7 million from essentially foreign um, consulting gigs and uh, failed to pay taxes on $1.4 million, having failed to report income and having taken deductions for things that he called business-related expenses, which would be legitimate, but which in fact turned out to be anything but business-related, unless you're a pimp. And I don't think that Hunter Biden is being <clears throat> prosecuted um, because he's Hunter Biden. I think he's being prosecuted because he engaged in a, a scheme of, of bad behavior that most people, especially 
people who uh, they call politically exposed persons, people who are um, public figures or related to public figures who get a higher level of scrutiny globally would 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 face as to if I'm a Republican and I'm conducting an investigation or put it this way, if I'm a congressperson and I'm conducting an investigation, absolutely, I would like my witnesses to be behind closed doors. Ask Adam Schiff about how he conducted the first Trump Ukraine impeachment. It was all behind closed doors. And he said it was necessary um, to preserve the integrity of the investigation. And so if now the Republicans are saying the same thing, why, if it was legitimate for Schiff, and I'm not sure it was, but if it was legitimate for Schiff, is it not uh, legitimate for Comer and and his investigative team? So it's, you know, the end of Casablanca or the middle of Casablanca of gambling is going (laughs) on here and I'm shocked, shocked. Um, Democracy is going on here and I'm shocked, shocked. shocked. Well, that... Look, if he has been indicted, he needs to face the charges. Uh, you know, there's there, you know, everyone is accountable under the law. So uh, and, you know, some people aren't more equal than others. And you're right about Adam Schiff and you're right about all of that. At the end of the day, he should be prosecuted. He should face uh, uh, whatever justice he has to face. And we move on. Um as far as the politics of it, I'm shocked, shocked that there's politics involved in it. I'm just shocked, mind you, just shocked beyond belief that there would be any political wrangling uh, involved in any of this. But that being said, I also think that after three years, the the what we've seen so far, and we don't know, all right, we don't know, but I, there has been no evidence that we've seen so far from Comer that would link the president uh, to any actions with his son that could lead to of course, you know, uh, an, an indictment of the president or the political expedient uh, idea of, you know, impeaching him. I, I just I haven't seen any of that yet. But if it exists, go for it. But at the same time, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So that, that's how I'll, I'll end that. Prosecute if you want. And a happy Festivus for the rest of us. Uh, John, where can, I'll let you plug. Where can we see you, brother? Going to be a busy week. Congress is trying to leave uh, town. Uh, House on <laughs> Thursday, the Senate, uh, the Senate at least saying they're going to be in Friday. So they have a lot to do. Um, and you can follow us at rollcall.com as we cover them trying to leave. It'll they'll probably leave in a huff as they always do around this time. Uh, under the cover of night, under the cloak of darkness, on the last train out. That's going to be some week. It's going to yeah. be a big. Michael, the, you? the sad part is that they, they come back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm very fond of the the, the they're like the swallows band. at Capistrano. Let's... <laughs> I'm very fond of the band Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks band. And um, for those who you aren't familiar with it, go Google it or Spotify it. Um, but Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks band has a song which is entitled. How can I miss you when you won't go away? Boy, that's and, <laughs> <wow>. <laughs> so Michael, where can we where can we catch up with you? Your your turn. So to my podcast is called That Said with Michael Zeldin. It appears on all of the major spot all, all the major podcast outlets. I would be very welcoming of people who wanted to help me to uh give me uh ratings or uh, other such things. Yeah. Uh, 
but it is a book-based podcast. We talk to authors about um, interesting topics. And in fact, I think next year I've got lined up uh, Sanjay Gupta, Brian Stelter, the people who wrote a book, which I think is very compelling in this conversation that we've just had about uh, the First Amendment and college campuses called The Canceling of the American Mind, um, a good, interesting read. It's a follow-on from their earlier book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and it talks about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion and the impact it is having on college campuses and uh, woke and canceling stuff. So there's a lot of interesting things to think about in these hour-long interviews that I present. So come on, give me a rating and um, help me out here. You got it. <laughs> and I got one for you. The name of this podcast is called Just Ask the Question. And we want to thank all of our uh, listeners and viewers for making us one of the top 30 podcasts on Good Pods. Uh, the name of the book is called Free the Press. You can find it wherever fine books are sold. And of course, weekly in salon.com with a with the uh, uh, with a column, and you can catch me asking uh, questions whenever I get a shot in front of the president or the first lady or anybody else in this administration. So once again, thanks for joining us. The name of the podcast is called Just Ask the Question, and I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time. And everybody, please have a happy holiday, a happy and safe holiday season.